Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. After a long hiatus, I'm proud to say that new Ohio Folklore episodes have finally returned. I took some time to write a book on folk legends of Ohio's own Wood County. It's set to publish this fall, just in time for Halloween. While researching stories for the book, I uncovered tantalizing nuggets of history from strange tales, both famous and obscure. I'll keep you posted on when the book becomes available. Until then, let's return to the subject at hand. The venture which got me telling stories in the first place. A little podcast that reveals Ohio's most intriguing, legendary locations. Ohio Folklore. Our journey today takes us deep into Appalachian territory, to our most visited and adored of state parks, Hocking Hills. With 25 miles of hiking trails, stunning waterfalls, and darkened caves, this place stands out among Ohio's parks. Even the most experienced of naturalists marvel at rock formations that look to have been transported from some canyon out west. Many of us have traveled here on summer vacations just to see the place with our own eyes. Spots like Old Man's Cave, the Devil's Bathtub, Cedar Falls, Rock House, and Ash Cave are just a few of the most popular and photographed locations. Folks are drawn to these places for their obvious beauty, but that's not all. Some are taken in by the imposing power of sheer stone walls rising far above their heads. Feeling small in the face of something larger than oneself is a kind of spiritual experience for many. Blocking out the sun, these rock formations were born about 10,000 years ago when grinding glaciers chiseled pieces of art out of the sandstone itself. Today's journey takes us off the beaten path or perhaps the hiking trail. While hordes of tourists descend on Hocking Hill's famous landmarks every season, it's the locals who spirit themselves away to one hidden spot off Highway 93. Just south of the town of Logan, at a bend in the road, runs a small stream known as Scott's Creek. It's here where a break in the tree line that runs along the southern bank reveals a tiny gravel pull-off. It's easy to miss if you don't know what you're looking for. And when the water runs high, most passers-by wouldn't even notice the legendary location hidden deep beneath the water's surface. Most are distracted by the din of a rushing waterfall, just a little ways downstream. It crowds out the noise from cars on the highway above, offering a serene escape from daily life. This picturesque setting like one of so many throughout the park, belies the deadly trap lurking deep in the underwater formation that has claimed lives for centuries. I'm talking about the legend of Death Hole. After parking at the tiny pull-off, those who know what they're looking for first come upon a ford, which stands just before the falls. This shallow area lined with sandstone has served as a natural crossing point for many, a detail to which we'll return later on. From here, 
visitors who trek upstream along the bank, about 25 yards, find Death Hole. In an eerie contrast to the rushing waters before and after it, the surface of this strange space is still like a mirror. At about 75 yards long and 30 yards wide, this seemingly safe spot is anything but. As the adage goes, still waters run deep, and this location proves the point. A peculiar rock formation is obscured by the murky still waters. It's a sheer cliff of about 15 feet, lying hidden. Its secret undertow is fierce and lethal. It's a mystery just how this cavernous space hasn't been filled in with sediment and debris after all these centuries. One old wife's tale proclaims the existence of a subterranean passage whose opening lies somewhere in the depths. Like a siphon, this rumored tube-like cave supposedly draws in the waters of Death Hole and empties them somewhere further downstream, somewhere beyond the falls. It's said this unusual formation in the bedrock adds even greater force to the undertow known to overwhelm Death Hole victims. Stories passed down through the generations from before the time of electric fences built to contain cattle tell of missing livestock which disappear at the spot, only to be found a little ways downstream. To get a sense for just what this place feels like today, let's hear from a local herself. Ms. Ashley Strong has lived most of her life within a 10-minute drive of the location. She so generously shared an audio recording of her own connection to the place. Despite the dangerous reputation, she and her high school friends felt drawn to it. And like a lot of impulsive teenagers, they decided to experience it for themselves. Later on in her description, you'll hear her mention the discovery of a wagon wheel downstream. That's something we'll talk more on in a bit. But for now, come, hear her story. Yeah, when I was younger, about 16, I don't know, um, me and my friends, we were out there, we were playing, and we seen the wheel. I believe in good karma, good juju, you know, I don't take stuff like that, especially if there was, like, a serious accident, you know, um, so we knew, but we were, you know, busy hanging out with our boyfriends, you know, I'm 5'2", what am I gonna do with a wheel, I don't need it, Believe it or not, now that I think about it, it was in, like, perfect condition. Granted, you know, it was a lot heavier. It was soaking in the water. But, like, there was not really anything too wrong with it. I imagine if I seen it dried out now, that was, like, 2010. (laughs) I imagine it's all crackled and dried. So, uh, the story is... That there was this family crossing it. It pretty much sucked in the whole family, the the carriage, all of it got sucked in underneath this hole. Okay, and uh, they never came out. Horse and buggy, all of it. 
Um, so there was people that did pass away. But I'm going to tell you what. That place is not that big. It's almost like a perfect circle, but wide, you know. Um, it is one of the darkest places that I've ever swam. And that is the darkest energy I've ever been in my life. I've been to Moonville. Um, that's another crazy place. But uh, you can tell, like, when I would jump in, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. <laughs> I look back at it now. And I'm like, you know how rocks get slippery when you're underwater? I didn't really think about not getting out. It is scary. Like, uh, people go fishing there, and their lines never reach the bottom. I've never been to the bottom. Nobody really knows where the horse and buggy went. Uh, it's really sad, honestly. I imagine that they're just settlers. You know, these are people... You know, just on a horse and buggy trying to cross, and they got sucked into this hole. But, like I said, I would jump in this place, like, just jump. Not even thinking, you know, like kids. And, um, I almost couldn't get out. And for a minute there, as I was panicking, I felt weird. I felt like I was... Like, them couldn't get out of this water. Um, of course, you know, I had my friends there, so they, like, pulled me up, you know. But I never thought about that until I got in that water. That water is the deepest, blackest thing I've ever been in. Um, I'm a country girl. Don't like to admit it, but uh, <laughs> I love this place and this town. But there's a lot of creepy stuff. I, myself, after that night, have never been back. It's a beautiful place. People go fishing there. Nobody knows what's down there. But all I know is you're not allowed to swim in it anymore. And it is one of the darkest places I've ever been. And I've been to some very spooky places, like some really spooky places. And I haven't been back. And I love the outdoors. But I am glad I got to share that experience with you. Um, I never really talked to anybody about it. I wouldn't advise you guys to jump in it, especially your kids. Um, make sure people know that. Because to get out, it's almost impossible. I mean, I sound crazy when I say this, but you have to go there um, and really check it out. There's nothing like it. Nothing quite like it. There's nothing like it, to be sure. From the perspective of someone who knows, like Ashley, let's be sure to take her advice seriously. As with all Ohio Folklore episodes, I encourage listeners to go and experience these fabled locations for yourselves. But please be smart. Do not swim here. Wear sturdy hiking boots that grip the ground along the banks, and don't venture into any area where you feel unsteady on your feet. Despite this place's dangerous reputation, 
It has drawn visitors from far and wide, for many reasons. Some like to fish, some like to hike, and some come seeking something totally different altogether, like the disembodied snorts and screams of distressed unseen horses, or the misty shadow of a young woman roaming the bank. Some have claimed to spot this figure sitting on the bank, staring blankly at the water's calm surface. And some, who venture to the location in the dead of night, when traffic along the highway is rare, have heard the undeniable, rhythmic plodding of a team of horses leading a creaking wagon along the road. These kinds of claims serve as great material for ghost stories. Disembodied sounds and misty shapes combined with the strange stillness amidst rushing waters. It's not hard to imagine how such a mystical place could have inspired some creative storytelling. These are all just tall tales being passed down from one generation to the next, right? Remarkably, according to the historical archives of the Logan Daily News, the following calamity did occur one steaming hot day the 16th of August, 1877. How fortunate that this story was recorded and preserved. If such ghostly activity does indeed linger here, we might just be able to piece together what the spirits are trying to tell us. In August, 1877, John Bensonhaver was a 29-year-old local farmer. Early on a Tuesday morning, he and his wife set out to take a wagon load of wheat to sell at the mill. The load must have come from their first harvest, given that the newlyweds had only been married a short six months. The wife, 20-year-old Clara Nixon Bensonhaver, had also been born and raised in Hocking County. Both of them had been widely and favorably known throughout the sparsely populated region. Another local farmer, by the name of William Knipe, would later provide details of the events leading up to the couple's attempt to ford Scott's Creek that day. He was following behind them in his wagon when they came to the natural ford just above the falls. Knipe had business in Logan, so he tipped his hat to the couple as he passed on by them. The Benson Havers' thirsty horses had quickly begun drinking from the creek that hot summer's day. Knipe thought nothing of it as he carried onward down the road, toward town. It wasn't until moments later, when he heard a crash from upstream, mixed with what he knew were the desperate cries of the Benson Havers and their team of horses. In a frenzy, Knipe turned his wagon back to reverse his steps. But by the time he arrived at the spot where he'd left them, there were no Benson Havers to be seen. He'd made it there just in time to see their two horses' heads disappear for the last time. Still attached to their submerged wagon, their rigging finally pulled them under the surface of the water, silencing their tortured screams in an instant. Large air bubbles slowly rose from the vacuous black space below and burst at the surface alongside floating debris like an empty basket and Clara's hat. Sunlight serenely bounced off the unnervingly calm water. Farmer Knipe 
stood on the bank in terror, racked with guilt over the fact he could not swim. He later told newspaper reporters that he was laden heavy with remorse for not being able to make any rescue attempts. If I had been able to swim, I could have easily saved the horses and have no doubt but that Benson Haver could have also been saved as the air bubbles were arising from the water where they went down. He was later quoted in the papers. John Benson Haver's coat was discovered a short ways downstream on the southern bank. In it were letters which he no doubt intended to mail later that day. An analysis of the tracks made by the wagon as it moved on into the stream suggested that the team had been led into the perilous spot by Benson Haver himself. There were no erratic movements suggested by the tracks. It was assumed that Benson Haver had no idea that the cavernous hole existed just a few short yards upstream from the ford. Another theory that arose from the initial inspection of the site suggested that the horses themselves may have sought out the shade and cool waters from the hole. The horses themselves may have wandered into the spot to find relief from the hot summer sun. Once they stepped off the precipice, they would have naturally took to swimming into the deep waters, bringing the trailing wagon behind them, which was loaded with the couple and 20 bushels of wheat. The unfortunate farmer and his wife were then pitched headlong into the black waters and, being unable to swim, met their fate there in the depths. The horses, for their part, seemed to make a valiant effort at survival. The place where Nipe had last seen their heads slip under the surface was the very place where wagon tracks could be seen leading off the precipice. They were trying to get back to the spot where they'd fallen off and had only just missed it before being dragged under. Word of the tragedy quickly spread through the small town of Logan as the village fire alarm sounded, calling all who might help with the recovery effort. A crowd of onlookers soon formed along the banks. A group of eight men, Logan's strongest swimmers, volunteered to go retrieve the couple's remains. Making a human chain of sorts, they risked their own lives to make the retrieval a success. Bob Boris had been under the surface just a short while when he brought forth Clara's lifeless body. Coroner Gage had made his way through the crowd to the edge of the bank and made the declaration of her death, a formality, as all had already known it to be true. A few minutes later, Will Davis dove deep into the still water and resurfaced with poor John's remains. It was soon discovered that his pocket watch had stopped at 10.25, capturing the moment of the couple's demise. His body was laid on the bank next to that of his young bride as the onlookers gawked and whispered among themselves, trying to absorb the tragedy that had just befallen this quiet Appalachian town. A reporter who was on the scene and witnessed the recovery effort stated that Clara's face retained its natural color. In fact, if one didn't know better, she looked to be sleeping there on the bank in a peaceful kind of way. John's remains, however, had been battered. His face was discolored, and his expression was one of torture. 
Although Coroner Gage ordered a spring wagon to come remove the bodies, it took some time for it to push through the throngs. A kind of morbid processional began as the gathered crowds formed a line to get a closer look at the deceased. Finally, the Benson Havers were removed to the undertaking department of the Logan Manufacturing Company. Despite their removal, many townspeople lingered on at the spot, aghast at what had just happened. Many revealed to reporters on the scene that despite having lived there their entire lives, they had no idea that such a deadly spot existed in the creek. So many struggled to reconcile with how many times they, themselves, had crossed at the natural ford adjacent to the spot. It could have happened to any one of them, with a small misjudgment on where to cross. Many asked that some kind of fencing or warning signs be placed nearby, announcing the danger posed to anyone who came near. When onlookers finally started to leave the scene, they told those who remained at home about the whole ordeal. This led to a second stampede of curious people wanting to see the Benson Haver's remains. As a crowd pressed in at the undertaker's office door, Coroner Gage finally relented to it, fearing an emotional uprising if he tried to stop it. Hours later, when the last spectator filed through the room where the couple had been laying on tables, the doors were closed and locked. Undertaker Frank Lemon and two local physicians assisted in embalming John's remains. Clara's remains had been placed in the charge of a respectable group of women who placed her body inside an ice casket. As it turns out, embalming was quite costly, and it's assumed that the family couldn't afford for both bodies to undergo it. In death, as in life, it appears that men were often afforded the most privileged option. Once all the preparations were finished, the doors were then opened once more so that mourners might pay their respects in a more honorable way. Many townspeople were seen going through the line two and three times. But by three in the afternoon, Clara's mother, Mrs. Mary Ann Nixon, finally arrived escorted by some of her family members. Many recalled the gut-wrenching cries that rang out as she approached the room where they both lay. On finally regaining her composure, she insisted on taking both her daughter and son-in-law home with her, so that the family might say their goodbyes in private. Within the hour, the couple's remains were loaded onto a wagon, headed to the tiny village of Ewing, where the Nixon family resided, only six miles away. The funeral did indeed take place at Clara's parents' home the following day, a Reverend Mittler officiating. Although Mrs. Nixon had requested a private gathering, growing crowds again gathered around the home. The family eventually relented as the mourners moved forward to hear the Reverend eulogize the young couple. We cannot avert such accidents, he told them, but we can prepare ourselves to meet them when they come. He preached on the frailty of man and the need to be ready when the time for judgment arrived. Coroner Gage's official investigation would later conclude with the following statement, also published in the Logan Daily News. 
After having examined said bodies and having heard the evidence, I do find that the deceased came to their death by accidental drowning in Scott's Creek at the place where their bodies were found, that they were on their way from their home in Washington Township in this county to Logan with the wagon and two horses, having a load of wheat in the wagon, that not knowing the nature of the bed in the stream or the depth of the water, they drove into the creek at said place to water their horses, and in doing so, they got suddenly and unexpectedly into a deep, abrupt hole in the creek, and all were drowned. For any listeners interested in paying respects to this unfortunate couple, their joint burial plot can be found at the Ewing Cemetery. Still easily read, their tombstone stands as a tall, ornate obelisk. Clearly, they were loved and missed in the years and decades following their deaths. In the more than 130 years since that terrible calamity, this unusual spot has held a ghostly reputation for many. Still, many locals come to it fully unaware of the danger hidden beneath the darkened waters. One such case resulted in the sudden and tragic death of an eight-year-old boy. On July 5, 1981, Jason Hamilton waded innocently into the cool waters of Scotts Creek. Not knowing of the steep drop-off, he wandered toward the edge and fell in. Logan's fire chief would later retrieve the poor boy's remains. With the rope attached, he was lowered into the abyss. Carrying the deceased child in his arms, he was hoisted to safety against the swift undertow of Death Hole. Fast forward about 30 years to the summer of 2012, and Logan resident Clinton Dart was spending the day fishing at a spot about a half mile downstream from Death Hole. He entered the water at Kachelmacher Park on the Hawking River in Logan. As he and his friends were headed down the bank toward some whitewater, he saw something distinct protruding out from the rapids. As he walked on to get a closer inspection, the shape became clear and recognizable. It was a wagon wheel with a metal hub and band, with spokes leading to the outer wheel. Dart had fished at this same spot for years and had never seen anything like it. He waded into the rapids to retrieve it. River rocks had fused onto the metal, a sign of just how long the object must have been submerged in the water. Wanting to know the wheel's exact age, he decided to bring it to the Hawking County Historical Society. One member, with some expertise on the subject, estimated a date of origin around the mid to late 1800s. You can see a picture of Clinton Dart and the wagon wheel he retrieved from the river at ohiofolklore.com. Although he offered to donate it to the society, they had no space to store it. An article published in the Logan Daily News claims Dart continues to store the relic at his home. So what are we to make of long-standing claims that spirits remain in this serene, still space? Whether or not you believe in ghosts, the dangers this location holds are clear. Anyone interested in seeing the place for themselves 
should take special precaution to avoid slipping into the creek. Seriously. Finding yourself in the water not only puts yourself at risk, it endangers anyone who might try to come rescue you as well. Maybe the ghosts who supposedly reveal themselves to visitors here are warning us of that very threat. Did the sudden loss of their lives leave them suspended between this world and the next? Should we take heed of the lesson they have to offer? That unseen dangers, even in the most beautiful of locations, leave us vulnerable. Life itself is wondrous and yet fragile. What a marvel it is that by some stroke of fate, we each have come to exist. May we value the time we have here, knowing it is finite. May we use our talents toward causes larger than ourselves, so that when our time comes, we may rest in peace. May those spirits left to linger in this space someday find that peace for themselves. This concludes today's episode on the legend of Death Hole. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can find more about Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.